Hello, welcome to episode 109 of Lunar Poetry Podcast. I'm David Turner. Happy New Year. At least we all hope it's a happy one, eh? Today's episode was recorded on the 18th of December last year, but these things take time to edit and release, and with podcasts it doesn't seem like there's anything worth putting out over Christmas because everyone's busy, or so it seems. Today's episode is with the wonderfully talented Byron Vincent. We met up at the Workhouse Kitchen in Bristol to record the chat. If you're in Bristol and you're looking for something good to eat, uh, coffee or something, or juices, and all the other stuff that cafes do, you should pop along there. It's really good. I met up with Byron just before he went to perform at a gig, and we chatted about class, mental health, trauma, I think we might have chatted about some lighter stuff as well, but I can't quite remember. We laughed a lot, so it must have been funny. And I'm sure it wasn't just the laughter of two service users. Byron has recently had quite a long break from doing spoken word stuff as he's been away working in theatres and for the radio documentaries and such. And uh, it was good to chat about what he'd been doing and why he was coming back. It was really good to see him at the gig afterwards. Unfortunately, we didn't have that much time to chat because there were some travel issues with Byron getting into Bristol, so we ran out of time a little bit. To save some time, we didn't record any poetry readings, but Byron kindly recorded a couple of poems and emailed them to me, so they'll come up at the end of the interview. So when the chat's finished, stick around for two poems. Links to Byron and Milk and as much as possible that's mentioned in the chat will be in the episode description. But as usual, if you want to find out more about what's going on with the podcast, go to Lunar Poetry Podcasts on Facebook or Instagram, at silent underscore tongue on Twitter, or lunarpoetrypodcast.com, where you can also download a transcript of this episode and just about all the episodes in our archive. One bit of news for 2018 is that myself and my wife Lizzie have started an accompanying podcast to run alongside this series called A Poem A Week, in which we'll bring you A Poem A Week. So far, episode one features Byron Vincent reading his poem What, which will come up at the end of this program. And episode two is me reading a fantastic poem by Susanna Galbraith called Two, which features in the latest issue of The Tangerine Magazine can find all those episodes over at SoundCloud by searching A Poem A Week, following the links in the episode description, or following A Poem A Week, all one word, on both Facebook and Twitter. I'm quite excited by this uh, little side project because it's sort of returning me and Lizzie back to why we first got interested in poetry, and that was individual poems themselves. And really the whole basis of running this podcast was to just provide a platform for poems and for people to share their work, whether it's the author themselves reading their work or that week's host. And as usual, if you like what we do, whether it's this Lunar Poetry podcast series or the new A Poem A Week, do us a favour and tell your friends, yeah? It really helps. It works better than any other form of advertising. And we'll love you forever. That's enough from me. Well, here's some more of me. But at least Byron's taken up most of the space. Cheers. Thank you.
Maguire, how are you doing? I'm really well, thanks. Thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. I was going to comment on the, uh, the weather outside, but it's really misty through the windows, so I can only <laughs> presume it's still cold. Yeah, you can feel it even though you can't see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We're meeting up in Bristol because, as regular listeners will know, that this is now where the, the podcast is based. But maybe we should just talk a bit about your connections to the city and yeah. why you're here doing the gig. So I've got a lot of connections to the city. I came here uh, in the mid, two thousand, about 2005, I think. And in fact, the very first week I was here, I went to a poetry night at Bristol Old Vic. There's an old guard of, of Bristol poets who I love to bits. Julian Ramsey Wade, uh, Lucy English. I can't remember who else was there. Rosemary Dunn, I think. I went to a slam and I'd never been to one before. I didn't know what, what it was that I was kind of attending. And I just saw them and thought, maybe I'll have a crack at that. And so I sort of very quickly became immersed in the, in the poetry scene here. I'm not a mad fan of slam poetry, by the way, <laughs> but, but it, was, it was really good for me at the time, um, just to sort of give me a little bit of confidence, get me out on stage, went through my little derivative phase, as everybody does, of looking at other people and soaking it up like the Borg. Uh, and it was useful and handy and has led to, you know, a career. So It's a really welcoming space if you want to just get onto a microphone, isn't it? Some, some might argue too, too welcoming. <laughs> but, but it, yeah, it is very welcoming. And, and Bristol is a very friendly town. And there's gigs in very rough pubs where you would have to sort of shout over bar fights and whatnot. So I think it's uh, become more civilised since then. But. It was it's a shame, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is yeah, a bit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, South London used to be like that. Yeah. yeah there was, um, I remember a, a gig we did, and the pub was still rough enough to get some really angry comments from the bar. Yeah. But even that's, that place has changed now. You know, that's completely gone. I quite like it when people tell you that they don't want you reading. Yeah. If that's, that, if that's not what they want, they should be able to tell you. Well, you, I, I'm very strongly of the opinion that you shouldn't force poetry on people that don't want to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> It's cruel. Yeah, yeah. It's not fair, um, and that happened. I've you know throughout the years, throughout the many years I've been doing this, I've seen that happen a lot. Um, but just as an aside, at once for a popular poetry organisation that shall remain nameless, uh, that used to have a lot of wacky ideas about where to send its um, rotor of artists, they would always put you in positions that were soul destroying. And one of them, there's a place in London called Shunt. I don't know if you remember it. It was under London Bridge. Oh yes, this yeah, yeah. vast array of catacombs. And what they did, and it was a nightclub. It was a nightclub. They put me in a Britney Spears mic. They had Helen Mort standing on a podium. I can't remember who else was there. Molly <laughs> Naylor was there, like <laughs> sat on a shelf. <laughs> and I, what my bits, like so, my I was. They made me stand on the bar like Tom Cruise in Cocktail, literally preventing a, like a 10 deep bar from getting their drinks through with the power of poetry. Yeah. Like, can you imagine like just a sea of like really drunk people, really angry that they're not getting me and a Britney mic sort of trying to do, you know, iambic pentameter or whatever. It was just, it was just, it was just a nightmare. There's a lot of that used to go on. I think actually that happened, that was the particular problem in that pub when we did that night, was that the woman that she ran the boozer, and she told people to please be quiet while people were reading poems, and that she served them in between poems, and people yeah. just lost their shit, because yeah. of course they would. Yeah. It's their local, and you're going in there and forcing them. Can't prevent people 
from their own from their booze in a local boozer yeah. without causing some kind of resentment. Yeah. <laughs> so how long did you do like the slam gigs for and how long did it take you to find more of a natural home? Uh, I did I did slam uh, for a couple of years because like I'm to explain all of that <laughs> Like my personal background is I, I, di I didn't go to school much. I was kicked out of school at 15. I wasn't very literate when I left school because I'm dyslexic. Uh, so, so moving into a sort of world where I'd performed before, you know, um, but not to the same extent. Uh, and moving into that sort of uh, poetry world, I didn't really know it. I didn't really know, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd read bits. Um, I'd always uh, soaked stuff up and I was a fan of, of reading, but I wasn't writing anything like I enjoyed. I was, I was writing for performance, and I still do, you know, I'm, my favourite poets uh, and my favourite poems have got no relationship with my, well, a little relationship with my writing. And, um, and so I did that for a couple of years, and it was, it, was, uh, it was just, I didn't really know what I was doing. I was, I was probably performing for the wrong reasons. I was enjoying the gratification that you get from a, from a kind audience and, uh, and the attention and, and just the fact that I got... The other, I, I've never called myself a poet, but but, but other people were, and I, and that was gratifying to me because of my lack of, well, because of my personal history, and, and because I, I very much was told that, that that I was you know thick and I wouldn't amount to much. So it was, um, it was on a very superficial level, it was gratifying. Bits of that resonate with me, and I think I would, and I do agree. I completely get what you're saying. It's easier when you're not the one saying it about yourself, but I would counter that with saying that it's not all superficial, is it? There's a very important role that those gigs play in making you realise that li literature could be part of your life. If you've been told previously that, that it shouldn't be or you're too, like, in your words, too thick to yeah, engage with it. I, I'd always written poetry, even, even when it was a dyslexic scrawl that looked like smash spiders on a page, you know. I'd always written poetry and, and, and then I, in the early 90s I did get up and do some stuff at gigs, at band gigs and stuff. Um, but it was very angry. I was still, I was straight off the estate back then and I, I was carrying a lot. So it was really sort of, of that political ranting lilt with a, with a smidge of surrealism because I can't help that. I can't curb it. And then, and then I came back and I was sort of experimenting with who I wanted to be and what my voice was. But that world of slam poetry is, is uh, you know, three minutes of, of entertainment and it creates a certain voice, you know, it pushes a certain voice. I never had slam voice, thankfully, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I did, you know, I did fall into a couple of uh, cliche coffins, you know, and, uh, but it was, a, you know, it's a process getting yeah. better at writing in all, in all, in all forms and it, and, it, and it did help. It helped me, certainly helped me in terms of getting up in front of a crowd. It's really odd, isn't it? There aren't many other art forms where you're thrust in front of a microphone and now video cameras and camera phones to be forever on YouTube and <laughs> such a novice stage of your career, as it were. Uh, um, it's just, and I think now, like even younger writers now, starting now, and there've been like, so many spoken word gigs now are filmed as standard. Yeah, you know, even the open mics, and you think, well, Christ, how are you going to get a chance to get past that all that? It's so, it's there's so much stuff on the. Well, it, personally, though, anything that was written more than two weeks ago is my juvenilia. That's the way I see it. It's it's binned. <laughs> so like, so you know, it's been it's been a long and evolving process. And some of the early stuff, uh, you know what? Now I'm so far away from it 
there are gigs from 10 years ago that I couldn't watch at the time or, or, or relatively closely after because it was that my cringes would get cringes. And I saw a couple, and yes, they are of a, of a, of a type of performance that I wouldn't do today, but there's the, you know, I'm not as embarrassed as I used to be about them. They've got a lyricism and a charm and I am trying to... Do you think do it just takes time to accept that that's part of the process? And yeah. you have to go through that embarrassment? So maybe I think so. Yeah. I think well, I'm I'm far enough removed now, and I, and I know, I know who I am and what I want and what I'm attempting to achieve, and, and you know any of the mistake, all of the mistakes I've made have been a part of me getting to that place. Yeah. So I, I'm I'm less uptight about yeah. it, you know. What's that? The comedy rule that tra trauma plus time equals funny. So yeah, it yeah, may, yeah. may just be that you. Or maybe maybe there's so much to be embarrassed about. You have to just <laughs> yeah. let some of it go. I, I I would be yeah. I think I'd just be overwhelmed by embarrassment if um if if I if I let it bother me. I just reconcile myself that I've done far more embarrassing things outside of writing. That <laughs> this is just the tip of the iceberg. It doesn't matter. You know? Well, that's it. Then another thing, because of the nature of a lot of the work I make, both in in and out of art, a lot of the documentaries especially, but a lot of the autobiographical arty stuff it's my life's an open book you know I don't have any secrets my, my I've got a Wikipedia page that said tells the world I'm a bipolar former heroin addict so I, you know I'm, I can't like wander the world like shamed by my past it's yeah. not wouldn't work for me yeah I read for the first time at a, a poetry unplugged which is in London a lot of people start Niles, there. Niles, Niles. yeah Niles, uh, currently Niles uh, O'Sullivan's hosting that and it's been going for 20 years and it, it's mainly because if you google spoken word or poetry gig in London it's the first hit and it's every Tuesday and you can go and slink around at the back and then come out but I'd been in uh, the most recent time spent some time on a secure psychiatric ward and been encouraged to write as part of that and I came out and then I saw someone doing some perform what I would have classed at the, or termed at that point performance poetry and I was like shit this is, seems I, I wouldn't mind trying this as a way of communicating I think the reason I like watching your because I've seen you in uh, live once, but I like watching your videos and stuff. I quite like the way you bridge the sort of I know you you categorize it as oversharing, but like that your life is an open book, but with adding elements of surrealism to it yeah. and the sort of the daft elements, and I found it really difficult. I couldn't add those elements at the beginning, and it felt really raw. Yeah. I think my question was supposed to be, was it a conscious effort to add these, the, the humour or the surrealism? Um, that... You know, political poetry is usually pretty awful. <laughs> and mine was no exception. You know, I was, just, I was just angry and I felt like I had a right to shout that at crowds of people. And, and that it's, uh, imposing some kind of rhyming structure on it made that acceptable. And it doesn't. It doesn't. In fact, it's, it makes it worse. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and, so, and so I'm very conscious. And, and the second time around, you know, I was very conscious of, of, uh, of, of anything that came out of my mouth. Was, I wanted to be sensitive that I had an audience in front of me. And, and, and so I was overly sensitive about that at first. I went too far the other way and, 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 and was... Um, avoiding things that I wanted to express and then I went I got to a point where I couldn't do that anymore to just get up on stage and not say the things that I needed to say and so when that happened I went through a process of trying to make and, I, and it was it was rocky you know I made some bad stuff <laughs> I made some 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 things I'm not uh, I'm, I'm not very proud of but but it was essential because because I wanted I really really wanted 
to get to a point where I was making things that meant something, which in itself is a cliche, I feel a little bit sick just saying it out loud. But also, we're, we're, we're in entertainment. Primarily, you know, everything that I do is supposed to have this journey. It's supposed to have this little journey where people have a feeling, you, and that might be laughter or, or, or it might be warmth, and then it's flipped into something that means something else, and, and that transition is the important bit for me. Um, usually, these days, it's fear and love <laughs> in its most basic form. I'm trying to, you know, we're all just, to some extent, these frightened, destabilised people, and I've got a lot to say about fear. I've got an anxiety disorder. I'm diagnosed with a panic disorder as well. I've got, you know, I collect diagnoses like Pokemon. It's, there's loads of them, and, 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 and you know, so, so, and I believe that, that fear is responsible for all the terrible things in the world. Anger comes from fear generally, and trauma, and all these things that cause great ills in society. And, and, and so, like, I, I, you know, I like, I want to share that we all go through these things to some, to some extent. I want to get a create a sense of that through language in some way and then say it's all right though <laughs> it's all right though because we've got people and we've got each other and I know I know how crass and cringy and cheesy that sounds but I'd be being disingenuous if I if I told it any other way because that really is what I'm trying to do so I have to just fess up to it now I think rather than sort of be cool and cynical about it because I'm not that's just that's what that's what it is mm. I've spoken a lot about this with. Um, do you know Emily Harrison? I, 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 we've met via social yeah, media. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm quite good friends with Emily, and we talk a lot about both being bipolar, diagnosed bipolar, and we seem to have spent the same amount of time in hospital, and we've got fairly similar backgrounds. This idea of trying to speak truthfully, which is partly being open and honest. I'm really open with people about my mental health issues and those family members without being over, overly sharing to other people's private lives. Mm -hmm. You know, I think the only way you're going to get anyone is ever going to get an understanding of this is if we all talk about it yeah. and we will share it. But how do, we, how do you share it in a way that isn't, doesn't fall into the accepted narrative of, um, how does Emily put this? The good survivor or something like that like we've the only way you can be accepted with a mental health issue is if, if you've overcome it somehow and you haven't lived with it or embraced it and i think that's what i found hard putting into the writing is how you then show that you're actually yeah because audiences want to feel safe and people want to feel safe but i kick against that and I, and there's a reason why there's a there's a lot of i, I did a panel the other day at, um at being a man a conference at the South Bank Centre, and it was Jack Rook oh, yeah, yeah, hosting yeah. it, another poet and um, spoken word performer. And and, uh, and really, we both, a lot of people, there's four of us on the panel, and we all kind of agreed that it's great that men are talking more about, you know, because that has been a hindrance in the past. It's great that people are talking more in general about their mental health and feel um, free to do that. But just having conversations isn't enough. And I feel strongly, I mean, I'm, I work as an ambassador for some mental health charities and I'm, I'm not quiet about how I feel when things are going awry. And I do feel things are going awry and that we have this very sanitized view of what mental health problems are these days. Stick somebody, a survivor, <laughs> uh, all the terms just, no thanks, um, next to a celebrity and, you know, somebody who's, who's, who's you know, it's past tense. <laughs> 
Um, uh, but it, it's not marketable. It's, it's a, it, mental, poor mental health is a messy thing, and, 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 it, and it's a cruel thing, and it's, and it's upsetting, and, and it's disturbing. And, it's, and, and, and like, it's never sold as any of this to, when, to, by the charities. I understand why. They want, they want to market things in a way that will get them money to, so that they can put that money in a good place, and that's not a bad thing. But in terms of the art we make, we don't have to fall into that category. You know, we don't, nobody's, nobody's saying, you know, I, I, I want to tell the truth. I want to tell the truth because, like, without that, what's the point? What's the point in talking about it at all? And so, you know, I, I do talk a lot about the, the, the smelly guts of it. I think that's what surprises me, that more people that talk about those issues don't also use surrealism. Because the two things go hand in hand, I think. Like, there's yeah. no disconnect, I think, in your work. That it becomes, you know, I... I. I'm glad you say that. I don't feel. I don't. It all. It's all part of the same thing to me. And um, you know, part of those little arcs on stage that I'm trying to create, they do mirror to some extent the little arcs I have when I'm not very well. I, you know, I journey up to mania and and then the big crash back down. Might reverse it for the stage, but like. Yeah. Well. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. There's a. It, I suppose it depends what my mood is in the, as I'm watching it or listening to it but yeah a couple of times it's felt like someone's recorded something on my head this the comp that internal dialogue I think is really important but I would say also this ties a lot into class as well because I think a lot about working class roots and how that can be expressed within an extremely middle class art form but this idea that to be working class is to be miserable through your art and to be mentally unstable is to be constantly miserable and that isn't my life that hasn't that wasn't my life growing up there's a lot of trauma when I was growing up but my family also laughed a lot you know I had a great time at times growing up there was a lot of shit going on around it but that, you know it, it's just this accepted narrative isn't recognizable to me because it's not our narrative we didn't write it that's why especially with class and another thing, <laughs> especially with class, because, um, you know, you look at, I mean, we are ever more ostracised from the public, as working class people, underclass people are ever more ostracised from the, from the public conversation. We are becoming economically ostracised and, and, and culturally we've been, we've been ostracised, demonised as well, scapegoated for decades now. You know, you look at the 80s, right, and, and, and there used to be, you watch an advert, there'd be some northern working class voice representing what it means to be salt of the earth, trustworthy and reliable. Uh, now you get that same voice, it's only ever represented puking in a phalaraki gutter or, or like fighting in the street or, or doing something that, that, that is related to this benefit street, um, uh, angry, stupid, low culture narrative. And um, I'm I'm all for redressing that because it's not it's not ours. We are, we have become a cliche, but we've been painted that way. Um, most uh, literary fiction is uh, some uh, uni lecturer disappears to um, the Isle of Arran to have a big think about something. There's never any working class stories. I'm I'm really excited at the moment about people like um, Jackie Hagan. Do you know Jackie yeah, Hagan yes. and, and 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 what she has to say on class? I'm putting together a book of essays. Robbed the idea off Nikesh Shukler, asked him, yes, it's fine, yeah, yeah. Uh, about uh, class and, um, and um, I've got some great people, Jackie's one of them, uh, there's lo loads, loads of good people. The full spectrum, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I've had my sort of 
run-ins with the with the sharp end of uh, of, of underclass culture. But you know, there's the, the the if you're a if you're a third generation drug dealer from a Peckham estate, uh, or if you're a lollipop lady from a Hebridean town, you're both working class. But the only thing that you've got in common is the fact that you have that your voice has no cultural capital. You know, we're we're a broad church. The things that we have in common generally are uh, well. The one thing that we have that unites us that relates us to poetry is uh, we have a really incredible uh, inventive use of language. Slang is working class and it's constantly evolving and it's a beautiful and brilliant thing and clever. I don't think we've got time to go down this route too far, but <laughs> it's, slam poetry plays no part in my writing. I don't go to slam events, I don't take part, but I do spend a lot of my time defending it because I find a lot of the criticism is hugely classist and a lot of the criticism thrown at um, slam poets is based around the use of language, the, the themes they're talking about. Um, the other side to that, one thing I do worry about with slam is that the more the BBC and other media channels pick up on it, the more that trauma narrative is rewarded. Because again, you just end up with literally, you are rewarded in performances at the Royal Albert Hall or prizes or chance to get on a telly um, and adverts. And it seems prevalent that the only, the only narrative that the BBC can understand is one of trauma, because of course that's what you'd be talking about because you've grown up on some estate. In, in whatever city around the country, you know, and it does worry me that that's what's going to be picked up on. Um, and, and whilst that's a huge and important part that people have got a chance to come and talk about trauma, that is not the only thing that happens at these poetry events. And I do worry about that, you know, those two sides of things. Yeah. yeah, I think you're right to worry about it because, you know, they are the people that are commissioning the programmes and, and, and there's the, you know, there's a culture of head tilt, let us, let us explore your sordid past <laughs> uh, and, and so there does need to be a balance to that it's really important and it's good that, that that you're thinking about it and that people out there are thinking about it and 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 more important than thinking about it is making work to counteract it mm. which people are doing oh no yeah i see it all the time i think it's just a, it, the annoying thing is and this is just a reality of all art forms is it i know lots of promoters that are spending their whole life building something up and should the BBC, I don't mean to just keep picking on the BBC, but should they just choose to come and make a half an hour programme to go on the TV, that is what will be seen by the vast majority of people and that will be taken as what this art form is. And I think it's a shame that so much good work gets ignored because it can't be packaged into the narrative that's wanted by those producers. Yeah. But I do also know, like I know radio producers, Radio 4 producers in Bristol that are doing a really good job at, at trying to show the breadth and depth of poetry in the in this country, and they've only got a certain amount of time because there's only a certain amount of poetry that you can get onto the radio. Never mind the TV. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, uh, it's not the money spinner I hoped it would be. Poetry. We to, <laughs> <laughs> Where are my riches? Where's my rock and roll lifestyle? But talking about the radio, I suppose that's quite a good point to then talk about the documentary work that yeah. you've done, and most recently was a fantastic program, Glasgow Boys. Yeah. Um, maybe we could just chat a bit about how these opportunities come up and um, do you feel like that's a complete diversion in your career or is it still part of basically what you do as an artist? There's, like, there's always been an element of autobiography and there's always been an element of, um, of talking about myself in public. Uh, so, so I guess not. 
in that sense, you know, I am addressing a lot of my own personal history. I'm, I'm very, feel very lucky, in, in a way, um, that I get to address this, this, the stuff that I'm passionate about in, in, um, in, in documentaries on, on the radio. So you've recently come back to Spoken Word after having a break, and has that mainly been working with charities and these organisations? Um, yeah, five five years. Uh, I've been w making theatre. Okay. Uh, I direct uh, yeah. theatre. Uh, I work a lot with the BAC. I've worked with their um, youth company, Homegrown, directed stuff there. I'm, I'm, and uh, uh, currently working on uh, plays, uh, uh, several plays, and I've made radio and uh, bits and bats. You know, yeah, like yeah. I, I'm a sort of jack of all trades, master of none. Really, that's my thing. I don't. Because again, it comes back to a little bit back to personal history. I, I, I never really had a proper job, <laughs> so I don't really, you know, I'm I'm 42 now, and I don't really know what, where my life's going or what I'm supposed to be doing. I do enjoy the work I make. I really enjoy it, and I do feel privileged to be able to do it. But there's not any real coherency to, you know, I'm, I'm going to make more documentaries, and and some people know me for for making documentaries. Some people know me for doing spoken word stuff. But who knows what'll happen in the future? This is part of thinking about, I mean, I'm always worried that uh, partly being diagnosed as bipolar, I'm always wondering, around, wondering when people are going to find me out and that there's all this, this curtain's going to be pulled back and everyone's going to go, oh yeah, we knew it's bullshit all along, but like, it's really heavily ingrained with the writing as well. But I wonder if it's also tied in with the fact that um, I didn't finish school. I was allowed back to do a few um, GCSEs and then I went and did a carpentry apprenticeship so I've got no literature background other than I read all the time and I really love I love literature but I think because I didn't go to I didn't do A levels and then I didn't go to university and I, I didn't choose literature in that way I don't feel pinned to it either does that play into how you yeah, define your career as well? not only do I not feel pinned to it but I don't you know I don't feel like I belong in yeah. it either um, and I feel that way about a lot of things, less and less so, I guess, as the years go by. But there's still an element of me of like, what am I doing here? You know, if I'm sat in random house or something, uh, I, I'm like, there is, I'm like giddy. But and also trying to, you know, play it cool. And that, but almost everywhere I go, I feel like that because I, I feel like an interloper in most places. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's definitely something that resonates with me as well. I suppose the reason I jumped into podcasting was because I didn't really think about whether I had a background in. Um, broadcasting or journalism because I, I was already pretending to be a poet so <laughs> it didn't matter if I pretended to be something else you know um, that's that, exactly how yeah, I feel yeah. but that weighed up against it it's odd because I served an apprenticeship I'm very concretely a tradesman I'm the carpenter and that's that working-class hangover I still find it hard to introduce myself as anything else even if I'm at Random House or if I'm meeting the Arts Council or if I'm meeting a group of publishers I still if, it's funny if we do like a round table introduction. I always feel like I should introduce myself as a joiner or mention the fact that I've got City and Guild's papers at home. <laughs> I do something real as well. <laughs> but I've not, I've, that's the thing, I've never done anything real. Yes. So I don't, my friend Karen McCluskey calls it the terror of er error, the fear, the fear of failure or the fear that I'm, or the feeling that I'm supposed to succeed at something. Nobody expected me to do anything good. You know, so like, so everything's a bonus to me. So I don't have fear of failure. So I mean, there are there are positives as well. Mm. You know, I, I am able to throw myself into a situation that might intimidate other people because I don't have any expectations about the outcome. 
maybe because I haven't had any training like journalism or broadcasting, I find myself the easiest way, rather than asking questions, I make assumptions and then allow the guest to, to completely knock it back. But it was, in my mind, it seems like that constantly battling and trying to prove yourself as an artist is almost the same thing as trying to work with, if we could say, like at-risk people when you're working for the charities and stuff, you know, trying to engage them in something. There's, when I've spoken to other people, when I've been feeling well and I've tried to, you know, been involved with outreach programs and sort of just gone to talk to people, there's a similar thing going on in my head that I feel at literature events where I'm trying to convince that person that I'm part of what they're feeling. And does it, I think what I'm saying is, does, it, does this sort of background help you when you're trying to then engage with people? I, I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying about, you know, you, you may have been in a position yourself where you're sat around, you're in a room with some mental health professionals um, trying to convince them you're saying <laughs> whilst drugged, <laughs> you know, and there is an element that I've been in that situation and, and yeah, and being in a, I've been in a lot of situations in my life where I've had to sort of fake it till I make it kind of thing and, and that's a real skill. I think, but because, well, I hope it is because I use it a lot. You know, I use and I've had to. I've had to use it. I had to pretend that I wasn't um, uh, a broken underclass former recidivist. You know, <laughs> when I when I first started turning up at, at venues and, and and engaging in conversation with people about things I knew nothing about and and, and had no cultural connection with, and and listen to people's prejudices as well because they didn't really know what where I was from and what and what that meant. Uh, like yeah, all of that, all of that helps. Being a lateral thinker and being able to communicate in a way that is hopefully in some way engaging to an audience is 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 exactly the same skill as telling a, a psychiatrist that you're fine to get out of hospital now. <laughs> but on the other side of that as well, because it definitely the amount of times I've told uh, youth workers and. Uh, school psychiatrists or whatever, whoever they were claiming to be at the time, that I was fine and nothing was happening at home and all that shit. That definitely plays in to, I used to do a lot of improvisation stuff on, so, you know, I can get up and tell a story for five minutes, that's fine, I don't know, I could stand up for much longer if the open mic slot was longer. Um, but also, how does that then play into, so I'm thinking directly to the Glasgow Boys yeah. documentary, how does that, if in any way, does that allow you then to engage with people does it does it at all help you engage with people afterwards, or, or are you relying purely on the fact that you understand part part of what they're going through? It's funny. I've got um, you know, I've got quite severe social anxiety, and be doing the Glasgow Boys, I just really enjoyed talking to those lads because it's easier for me than talking to people in in the world that I actually live in, and so in that in that sense, it was it was very easy, and they're very open, uh, dis, you know. Because of the journey that they're on, they're, they're very open, empathic communicators and you know, they don't really have many secrets and, and that sort of bravery in the way that they communicate is that I respect it and I try to be that way. So, so actually in that situation, and we've got a shared history, we've got a shared trauma and that's, that's a bond, you know. I didn't have any uh, issue talking to those guys but, but other people, yeah, I mean get me in a group dynamic of, in a situation that I don't understand, I don't really understand most situations, uh, and I'm a mess, much better one-to-one. -one. Yeah, yeah. But I can, yeah, but I can skip around things because I learnt those skills, you know. 
I've, I, you know, I didn't, I wasn't, wasn't unusual for me to lie to a social worker when I was younger. Yeah, yeah. I think mainly my, this whole series has been going for three years now and it's basically based on me wondering out loud how <laughs> anything connects in my own life. Yeah, yeah. Just trying to bounce that off of other people. I enjoyed it. it. Can yeah, I sorry to interrupt, yeah, yeah, but yeah, I, yeah. I actually, th there, is a, there, is a, there is a correlation, a, a serious one in terms of the art and, and those interactions. And that, that is that I really enjoyed that fantasy space that I was creating, and and the narrative of what I, of what I, I was imagining at the time, and going anywhere, and because it was like an you know it's like I was creating an avatar, and and I could put that person wherever I wanted to put them, and they had a great life, <laughs> and so there is there is a, a correlation there um, because I think you know it's not it's not just writers that have had a difficult past. I think all, we all as writers enjoy creating uh, universes that we might like to exist in parts of, or even ones that we're terrified of. Yeah. I suppose then maybe it's natural for some, obviously as I was just saying, not every writer comes to writing because of some form of trauma, but it is probably a form of escapism for everyone, especially the live stuff and story, like storytelling nights and stuff. It's almost pure escapism, isn't it? Yeah. But I suppose maybe for people that have experienced that kind of trauma, for a, a select few, then having the opportunity to tell other people's stories. You know, if you've gone so long without a voice yourself, um, and this, part, this is a big part of what the podcast exists for, is because I felt for so long, not that you've seen it now because I talk all the time, but um, I did feel for a long time that I didn't have a place to speak, you know, and it's nice now that I've got the ability to hand a microphone over to other people. Yeah, it's, it's, and it's a good thing. Like I've got a real strong belief in the power of stories. And I, 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 went, I took, to relate it back to the Glasgow boys, I went into, uh, I demanded, <laughs> arrogantly, uh, demanded a meeting with the commissioning editor at Radio 4 and went in and said, uh, this is what I don't like about Radio 4. So always some uh, private school, uh, middle-aged, uh, uh, privately educated white guy goes into an environment, deconstructs the situation academically, talks about it as though it's, as though it's an academic situation, even if it's a deeply personal situation to the people that are living it. And what I want to do is I want to I want to enable people to tell their own stories. You know, we can we can get artists in, we can get writers in to, to empower them and and and, um, and get them to 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 tell their own stories in a in a way that will benefit them culturally, spiritually, economically, the whole lot. You know, so that they are improving their lives with their own stories. And and he nodded his head and was you know, in, in agreement through it all. And I was like, I want a six part strand, and I, and I wanted to, and, and and he was nodding his head, and at the end he just went. Yeah, no, no. I mean, I agree. I agree. There's a lot of that, and we yeah, wanted to. Yeah, we yeah. need to change it. And and and. Um, but you can't. You've never produced anything in your life. <laughs> you have to work with somebody. So as a compromise, I got one thing, and I got uh, to work with a producer who I love. He's a great yeah. guy. But yeah, uh, that's my that's my aim. Eventually, is is to sort of. I mean, I love telling stories, and I'll always do it. But I really, 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 I'm really interested in in empowering other people to do that. And I think. You know, the marrying writers as sort of mentors with people who've got a, a powerful story to tell, and I, by that I mean the right writer as well. It's got to be somebody who absolutely gets it, who's empathic and not exploitative, uh, and not coming in with their own agenda, other than to do a nice thing, to do a good thing. Then, then I, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm all for stories that advocate for people. You know, advocate for people who, whose voices have been silenced in some way. So that's what I'd love to do more stuff around that. 
I think that's a really nice place to stop. Okay, great. So we're running out of time <laughs> anyway, and you've got a gig to go to tonight. Yeah. Um, we'll give uh, just a quick plug to Milk that happens regularly in Bristol. So if, if you're visiting or if you do live in Bristol and you want a regular poetry night to go to, then check out Milk. They're on on the social media. But thank you, Byron. Thanks for oh, joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Cheers. That was Byron Vincent chatting to me in Bristol. Don't go anywhere. I told you, didn't I? There's poems to come. Thanks for listening. I very briefly had the privilege of being poetry pen pals with the incredibly talented and mellifluously voiced folk singer Rachel Samani. And this... Um, was my first offering in our little exchange. It's called What? And the earth split like a nest of spider eggs and the cheers scuttled out as sincere as a photocopied laugh. Then, with a viscous grunt, What? was hocked and snotted from the safe black of nothing into the bleaching light. And the light scorched him clean, burned the book of him, baked the mud of love to his docile flesh until it cracked like a mocking smile. And his outsides sang in pain, and his insides trembled with not knowing, until the furnace of his most middle-middle coughed a junkyard of words. Each enunciation a clumsily wielded machete, hacking at emptiness like it meant something. And so what asked why and was greeted by anemic silence. And so what asked why and 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 so on and so forth until time and gravity answered in a language so thick and dense it bullied him back into the dirt. Uh, back in about 2012, I did um, a project called Made Up with another poet and writer, Molly Naylor. And what we did was we uh, offered free poems and stories to uh, anybody that wanted them. So you could pass them on as gifts or, um, or, or have them for yourself. And we did everything from tell stories about wizards to um, his history professors whilst they drank hot vimto in bed to go into primary schools and uh, this was a commission um, by uh, a woman in Norwich who wanted uh, a poem about a husband's car um, for him now I'm not really a car guy but 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 he had a Citroen DS and if I was going to be a car guy uh, then I think they are the motors that I would fetishise. So this is about Citroen DS. The bonnet is a shield protecting you from the modern sickness. Its lines are the supreme creation of an era. The headlights are the meticulous eyes of the first robot looking into the future from the past. The exhaust is a sardonic goodbye. The boot is the old suitcase in which you keep your well-thumbed copy of your escape fantasy. The bumper is a cutthroat razor that's never been opened. The threat of it alone is enough.
The chrome trim is Connery as Bond, skiing down the volcanic slopes of a villain's lair. The FM radio is a telegram, agreeing with your disappointment at the state of things. The antenna is a 1955 Gibson Super 400 archtop. The fuel tank is a single malt in your father's stomach. The door handles are rabbit holes leading to adventure. The angles are your first crush or notes in a perfect chord. The doors are your boyhood self as Batman. The windows are a private screening of your favourite film. The indicators are a civil excuse me in a theme pub brawl. The odometer is the best anecdote you've ever heard. The speedometer is a beckoning index finger. The ignition is a toe dipped in the sea. The spark plug is a popping cork. The hubcaps are rose-tinted mirrors. The engine is a cheering crowd or the blind leap between lust and love. The horses that power it are more mythical than bestial. They chain smoke Marlboros and take long lunches whenever they like. The hydraulics are a boy showing off to his big brother. The dashboard is the face of a benevolent alien god. The steering wheel is a toss coin that always lands in your favour. The passenger's seat is an invitation. The driver's seat is a time machine. The day is an unwritten to-do list. The sunset is your sat-nav. The accelerator is your favourite song. The road is a choose-your-own-adventure book. The rear-view mirror is filled with things that can wait. Ahead of you, there is nothing. Or everything. Whichever you prefer.